0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. For things present or things to come, nor height or depth nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. I'll give you a few moments of silent prayer to use First 1 John 1:9 1, if necessary to make sure you're in fellowship. Ready to focus on the study of God's Word this evening and to worship Him through the teaching of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have this nation to live in, this nation with its rich heritage that is grounded in your word, that if it were not for the Bible doctrine that was understood by not only our founding fathers, but the culture as a whole that lived in these colonies during the 17th and 18th centuries, we would not have developed the capacity for freedom, the heart for liberty, and the desire to live outside of tyranny. Father, we thank you that we have the freedom to worship still, and the freedom to teach the truth, the freedom of speech, and all the other freedoms still guaranteed in the Constitution that we do have. Father, we pray that there would be those in government that would recognize the serious problems that uh, threaten our freedom, and that you would raise up leaders who would be able to Uh, guide and direct our nation and protect those freedoms and even restore those that have been lost. Father, we pray now as we study your word that we might recognize this is the foundation of all freedom. Jesus said you will know the truth, that is, the word of God, and the truth will set you free. And no matter what our external circumstances may be, there is real freedom in the soul because of the word of God and because of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, now as we study Your Word, we pray that You would challenge us with the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope everybody had a nice uh, vacation this last week, a few days off. Got a chance maybe to go back and listen to a few uh, tapes that you hadn't heard yet, just to uh, keep on target while I was away in Connecticut. Folks up at Preston City wanted me to express their thanks to you for... Uh, giving me the opportunity to get away and go up there. I appreciate it as well, just the opportunity to go someplace where the temperature didn't get over 80 degrees. Somehow I think I might make it for the next three or four months. We're not going to discuss how much ice cream we ate during the week. People don't know this, but New England, and specifically Massachusetts, but New England as a whole, has the highest per capita consumption of ice cream in the nation. And they make some of the best. I mean, we all love Blue Bell. That's our patriotic duty. But I'm telling you, those New England Yankees have been making ice cream a long time, and they know how to do it right. So we uh, enjoyed ourselves way too much. We'll just leave it at that. Okay, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we'll review with verse 18 and make our way on into verse 19. As we make our way through these seven letters to these seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, there's one word that stands out in my head that ought to be just beating each of us over the head. And that's a word that somehow hasn't been traditionally associated with grace. We are firm believers in grace. Grace means that God bestows His favor and His merit upon us, Without reference to our own behavior, thoughts, attitudes, or actions. Grace is free to us because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. But somehow along the line, whenever you teach grace, people get the idea that you can just, well, my sins are paid for, sins are forgiven, I can just do whatever I want to, and there's no accountability. And the one thing that comes across in these letters is that there is accountability. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ sitting and acting as a judge, as a peer judge, on his church, on the body of Christ, because he is working during this church age to prepare a body of believers who will be his companions, the book of Hebrews says, medicoi, Uh, his companions, his co-rulers during the millennial Kingdom. And we are therefore described in these seven letters as overcomers, victorious ones, those who have overcome the influence of the cosmic system and our own sin nature to press on to spiritual maturity. And so there are special rewards and privileges for those believers. That's because there's accountability. I remember some years ago somebody took issue with me over that out in a parking lot somewhere after Bible class, and I said, sure, there's accountability. Just because you're given something doesn't mean it absolves you of accountability. When somebody gives you a brand-new vehicle, gives you a brand-new car, or let's say uh, something fancy gives you a brand-new Lamborghini, And if you do not take care of it, if you don't follow the instruction manual, if you don't change the oil when you need to, get a tune up when you need to, put new tires on it when you need to, then eventually it's just going to stop running and it will be of no use to you. It's still yours. You still have the title deed. And if repairs are made, it can be still a future value to you perhaps. But you have an obligation to take care of it. You have responsibilities. Grace doesn't absolve you of responsibility. Grace, in fact, gives us even greater responsibilities and accountability because we have something that we did not earn or deserve. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but I have, that in life when people are given things that they haven't worked for or earned, they have a tendency to treat it uh, a little too lightly. And that happens, unfortunately, with our salvation unless, of course, you get into the Word and begin to grow and mature and learn all of the dimensions of this fantastic salvation package that we've been given and all that we are in Jesus Christ so that we are then challenged to press on to utilize all that Jesus Christ has provided for us in grace. And that's what these letters are all about. They are challenges to the church Meaning the entire body of Christ Down through the ages From the cross to the rapture All believers, all congregations Will be evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ In light of our future role and responsibility And that's where we come in the first verse Of this fourth letter now To the angel of the church In Thyatira, right? And this is not the pastor. It's not a messenger, a human messenger. It is directed to the angel, and these angels serve within the framework of the angelic trial of Satan and the angelic conflict. These angels serve as heavenly court officers bearing witness bearing testimony to the execution of the justice and righteousness of God to the church during the church age. That's their role, so that each of these heavenly court officers assigned to each of these individual congregations then has a checklist, a criteria or critique sheet that he utilizes that will be then posted and filed in the heavenly record. So the angel of the church in Thyatira Thyatira is located, as you see on the map on the screen, uh, somewhat inland from the other three cities that we studied. It was a smaller town, and as we see in this next slide, it was originally founded as a border town between the Greek empire under Lysimachus and later the kingdom of Pergamum and the Seleucid Empire. And it, during the course of history in the 3rd century, 2nd century, it went back and forth between uh, the two until the Romans took over in approximately 190 B.C. As a sm- It was a small town, but it was located strategically on... Three major trade routes And as a result of all of the commerce and all of the trade It attracted a Jewish population It also attracted people from many different uh, trades, backgrounds, skills uh, Different merchants And they developed various guilds And each of these guilds, we would call them unions today But each of these guilds Was associated with some god or goddess A patron god or goddess In the Greek pantheon And whenever these Uh, These guilds, these business associations Would socialize, which was quite frequently And as we all know, there's a tremendous amount of business done in social context Whether it's out on a golf course or over a three martini lunch or whatever it might be There's often a lot of business conducted in non-business settings And so it was very important for anyone who was in any uh, any of these guilds, any of these uh, commercial endeavors to be involved socially. And if you were a believer, and all of a sudden it's, it's time to have the weekly end-of-the-week meeting and everybody's going to go down to the temple to Apollo and they're going to get uh, rip-roaring drunk and have, uh, engage in uh, sex with the temple prostitutes, then if you're a believer, now you have a problem. And you have to figure out how you are going to handle this. And the way that many believers handle a cultural conflict between their Christian belief and the pressure from the culture is simply to say, well, you know, the Lord's going to understand. I'll use First John 1, 9, uh, rationalization, whatever it may be, rather than sticking their head up and having it lopped off, and which was a real possibility in the ancient world. And so as believers, we constantly struggle with what the Lord indicated in His high priestly prayer in John 17, and that is that we are in the world, we live in the midst of the cosmic system, but we are not of the world. We are different. And as you go through that sanctifying process, that spiritual growth process that's outlined in Revelation 12 too, we have to do away with the cosmic thinking that... Governs our own soul and we have to replace it with Bible doctrine And the more pagan the culture is Which is a certain situation we're facing Our parents didn't face it like we do Our parents lived in a generation and in a time That was still heavily influenced by the Bible Even though many people may not have been Christians And there was a tremendous influence of 19th century liberal theology On most of the major denominations Our parents still lived in a time when people gave lip service to the Bible. If you said, well, the Bible says, that was a statement that carried authority. And people said, well, if the Bible really teaches that, it must be true. Now, they may not fully believe it. They might not be Christians. But there was still a sense of significance to biblical authority. And that's completely gone now. Now, the paganization of American culture has not reached the lowest levels that it reached in the ancient Roman Empire or in Greek culture, but it is certainly headed there, and it's in third or fourth gear by now. And so as each year goes by, we find ourselves having to face decisions and situations and circumstances that are very unpleasant because we know that there are times when we have to stick our head up at, at work in the office, at school, in the classroom, and it's known that we are a believer, then we're just going to become a target. And I had uh, one young lady in my congregation up in Preston who went off to freshman year at the University of Connecticut last year, and she took a women's studies elective, and within about 15 minutes of class, the uh, professor discovered that she was an evangelical Christian and she had a bullseye painted on her for the rest of the semester. And uh, she was even told by the professor that she would never be realize who she was as a woman until she got away from that uh, uh, archaic teaching at her church and that uh, misogynist pastor that she had. So this is what we run into over and over again from, from the cosmic system. And you parents need to recognize that as your children grow up, they are going to come more and more in conflict in what's going on in the schools around them, both from their peers and from the faculty and from the, the entire administration. We live in a nation that is no longer sympathetic to biblical Christianity. Now, there are pockets, especially because we're in Texas, and there's still a strong influence of biblical thought in places in Texas and in the South. But if you go out to the left coast or if you go out to the other coast, then it gets really bad. And you have no idea. In fact, I understand that up in Oregon and Washington, that you have the lowest per capita church attendance in the country. And I think that, the, uh, that, that New England is just a little bit behind. It's the center of the country and the South, where you still have biblical influence. But the more divorced we become from our biblical heritage, and the more we lose it, and these recent Supreme Court decisions just illustrate that, that we have drifted from our roots, our, the thought form that, that gave content, gave direction, To the Declaration of Independence Now I know Jefferson was a deist But just because you're a deist in 1785 Doesn't mean you're not heavily influenced by theistic thought And that was true There's language in the uh, Declaration of Independence That clearly shows, uh, even within a deistic framework That uh, there's a creator-creature distinction And that the source of our freedoms comes from outside the physical, material uh, universe and it was the teaching of the Word of God, especially as a result of the First Great Awakening that occurred in the 1740s, that really shaped the thinking of the American people in the colonies and laid the foundation for freedom that uh, came to fruition at the, with the Declaration of Independence and then the American Revolution. Well, the church at Pergamum is a church that has compromised their doctrine. There's still a core group within the uh, congregation there. There is still a small pivot of believers that have grown to spiritual maturity. And that's the focus of, these, uh, of the second verse that we'll look at this evening. We saw in first, the first verse that there's an emphasis on the Lord Jesus Christ as he appeared to John in that vision in chapter 1. Three things are said related to the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, that He was the Son of God. Second, that He had eyes like a flame of fire. And third, He had feet like fine brass. The title Son of God emphasizes His deity. Of the 45 times that that title is used in the New Testament, it's only used once in the book of Revelation, and that is in this particular verse. It is... Therefore, a title that is emphasizing the exalted Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and it is emphasizing his authority as the Son of God to judge mankind now there's a particularly interesting connection inside this uh, this particular letter related to the Son of God mentioned here in. Uh, Verse 18, and the final reference toward the uh, overcomers down at the end of the chapter in verses 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27 come out of Psalm 2. And uh, Romans 1-4 is a New Testament verse that borrows from the imagery of Psalm 2-7. That Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, what Paul is referencing there in Romans 1-4 is a verse we studied a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night in Hebrews 1-5, a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And that is that at this future time, uh, there is a reference, a declaration made by the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the... You've got to watch your time here now. Just wake up a little bit. At the end of the tribulation, he is going to... Uh, remind everybody of a Previous declaration Okay so at the end of the tribulation He's going to remind everybody Of a declaration that was made At the time of his resurrection And that was a declaration That he was The son of God But in that Psalm there's an emphasis It just refers to him as the son Today you are my uh, Today I declare you to be my son Today I have begotten you and the phraseology there brings together the sonships of David, the son, sonship, and the sonship of God in that one person. So there's a recognition in the Old Testament based on Psalm two seven, that the Messiah would be also divine. That's seen in acts 13 thirty three God has fulfilled this for us, the children, in that He has raised up Jesus. That's the resurrection. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I, and literally from the Hebrew it should read, today I declare you begotten. It's not that this is when he was begotten, but there was a declaration made there with reference to who Jesus Christ was. That's what Romans 4 refers to, declared to be the Son of God with power. So this all connects together as background for understanding this letter to Thyatira Now Psalm 2.8 says Ask of me This is the Messiah speaking or This is the Father speaking to the Messiah Ask of me And I will give you the nations For your inheritance And the ends of the earth For your possession You shall break them with a rod of iron You shall dash them to pieces Like a potter's vessel Those verses are quoted In Revelation chapter 2, 26 and 27 At the end of this particular epistle Now what does all that mean? What all of that means is that there is an inherent unity In this particular uh, evaluation report The vision of the Lord Jesus Christ Focuses on His being the Son of God So that there is a connection made internally With our future Position to rule and reign as joint heirs with him, and in the millennial kingdom. The next thing that said is that he had eyes like a flame of fire, and that is a picture of judgment. The eyes are a picture of knowledge. His eyes were like it's indicated again in Revelation 19:12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except. Himself, And the point of this verse, at least all that we want to cover here, is that Jesus Christ, when he returns at the second advent, is coming in judgment. And so he knows who is to be judged and what the basis is, and that is the emphasis of the eyes like a flame of fire. Then there is a reference to the fact that his feet are like fine brash or burnished bronze in some translation. Actually, it's a bright shining metal, and we don't really know what it was. But the idea is that it's gone through a purification process, and the emphasis is that the Lord Jesus Christ went through that purification process during the first advent when He came to earth in hypostatic union. He was undiminished deity united with true humanity, And during the period of the Incarnation, he went through many different tests, many different tests of adversity and prosperity, giving the opportunity to apply the doctrine that he learned, to apply Scripture to all of these circumstances and situations. And it was, as the writer of Hebrews says, through these things that he suffered that he was matured or perfected in his humanity. And so that's the emphasis of this last part. So that whole imagery we saw last time focuses on his role as a judge. He is coming to evaluate the church. Then we come to the next verse, Revelation 2.19. Now in this verse we have to address one of those technical little issues known as textual criticism, that there is some difference in the Greek Manuscripts. As I pointed this out before, and just to boil it all down to something that's fairly simple to understand, there are well over 5,000 either whole or incomplete manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. We have more documentary evidence of what was stated in the Greek New Testament than we do anything else. And it's true that there were copious errors. But for the most part, these copyist errors were simply errors of uh, spelling, errors of punctuation. Sometimes they would get uh, words in different uh, word order. But when you have about 5,000 different manuscripts, you have a lot to base your conclusions on. But in the study of textual criticism, which is the science of comparing these manuscripts, weighing the evidence, trying to determine what the original uh, reading was, there have been a couple of different theories that uh, set forth that have been popular in the last hundred years or so. The one that was, we'll start with, is was called the uh, Textus Receptus, or the TR. The TR was what was used to translate the King James Version, and the TR was made up of about eight or nine Greek manuscripts. That's all they had at the time, eight or nine Greek manuscripts, and they weren't very old. So in the 19th century, 150 to 200 years ago, when they began to discover some more uh, ancient manuscripts, manuscripts that predated the Textus Receptus by as much as seven or eight hundred years, then scholars came along and said, well, these older documents must be more accurate. And so they set forth a theory that older was better. But as I pointed out before, if you have something written in the third century that's a bad copy of something written in the early second century, and you have something written in the, a manuscript dated to the seventh century that is a perfect copy of a manuscript written in the early 2nd century, what's better, the older one or the more recent one? What's the more recent one? Because it's an accurate copy. So there was a flaw there, and, and nevertheless, scholars really debate this. Many different issues are involved in this, but most of the modern translations, New International Version, New American Standard Version, New Century Bible, All but the New King James are all based on this older is better theory. In the mid-20th century, another view of textual criticism came forward called the majority text view. And this was the view that the reading that was in the majority of documents was the best reading. And uh, there's a lot more to it, believe me, than what I've said But I've tried to boil it down Make it as easy to understand so we can see what's going on here Revelation 2.19 in the New King James Version reads like this I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience Notice the word order Works, love, service, faith Also notice that these are listed with nothing but a comma between the nouns. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Then if you compare that with the New American Standard Bible, it reads, I know your deeds. Deeds, works, that's a judgment call on the translation for Aragon. That's not the issue. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and Perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Notice the difference. It's a different word order. You go from love, service, faith, and patience to love, faith, service, and uh, perseverance or endurance. So it's a different word order. And then you also have the inclusion of these ands, which in the Greek are the word chi. Now I'm just going to give you a corrected translation. The word order of the New American Standard is correct here because both the uh, older documents and the majority text agree. Only the TR has the uh, reading that it has. It's a very small, very small collection of manuscripts that have that word order, and I think it can be explained. But I think the corrected translations, the one I just put up there, I thoroughly know your production Now the reason I translated I thoroughly know Is because once again we have our Greek verb oida And when applied to God Oida indicates complete and total intuitive knowledge It indicates his omniscience And so it's a thorough knowing That the Lord Jesus Christ knows everything there is to know about you Everything there is to know about this church or any church There is nothing hidden from that Uh, Perspicuous glance of the Lord Jesus Christ So he knows everything there is to know about us He knows our production That's how I prefer to translate that word Not works For some people works has a connotation Of something you're trying to earn For other people deeds uh, is less uh, specific, so it's production, that which is produced in our spiritual growth as we're advancing to spiritual maturity. So the Lord Jesus Christ says, I thoroughly know your production. And then we have our first Kai, and the first Kai here shouldn't be translated like a simple conjunction and your love, because see we've seen this in every one of these letters there's a summary statement at the beginning. I thoroughly know your production. I know everything there is to know about what's going on in your church. And then there's an itemization. And so he, the Lord Jesus Christ begins that same way here and says, I thoroughly know your production, even your love and faith. It is an extensive use of the chi, which is very common in the book of Revelation. I thoroughly know your production, even your love and faith. These two stand out. As the main emphases of this co- commendation part of the epistle I know your love and your faith Now, why do we begin with love and faith? Because these two, these two character qualities Love is agape and faith is pistis Are both produced by God the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit They are the inherent character qualities produced by the Holy Spirit and then the next two attributes, service, which is diakonia, the same word we use uh, from which we get our word deacon. It means to serve or minister in a local congregation with reference to Christian service. That is your service and endurance. It's the word hupomone, and it means steadfast obedience, long-term, continuous application of the word despite opposition, despite testing, temptation, everything else. Now, service and endurance grow out of, in terms of application, grow out of love and faith, so that love produces service. Service is a form, Christian service is a form of impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind. And we'll get into that in just a minute. Faith, here should be translated faithfulness. Should be translated faithfulness. The primary meaning of faith, as we'll see, is trust or reliance, but pistis on occasion means faithfulness as it does in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And so faithfulness produces endurance. So we stand with two, two character qualities produced by God the Holy Spirit, and then the application of that character in terms of the Christian life And the ministry within the local church And then it concludes that your recent production is superior to the initial production That shows growth, maturity They've been learning the word and they've been advancing step by step So that the production in their spiritual life at this point is much greater than it was before Now this, as we'll see, applies to only a small group in the congregation now let's go back and pick up a little few loose ends now that we have a correct translation. I pointed out that these two nouns that are listed are both listed as fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5:22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, which is agape, joy, peace, long suffering, which is not hopomone here, it's a different word, it's a macrothemia, long suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, which is pistis, so these are fruits of the Spirit. That means that as you grow and mature in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit internally is transforming your character. Now your volition is not passive to that. You have to exercise your volition. You don't just—it's not the old give up or or let go and let God mentality of the Keswick movement. You don't just surrender yourself to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit and it automatically happens. We'll look at the process and that's very important here to understand the mechanics of the Christian life which undergird the Galatians 5.22 passage. Let's put it up here like this. You start off with the filling of the Holy Spirit plus the Word of God. These are the two aspects necessary for spiritual growth. They don't work independent of one another. The focus of the filling of the Holy Spirit, or literally by means of the Holy Spirit, is to fill your soul with the Word of God. If you take Ephesians 5.18, which is the mandate to be filled by means of the Spirit, and you look at the context, the verses that follow talk about uh, being submissive to one another, talk about giving thanks in all things, talks about uh, making... Uh, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and you have the same list of consequences over in Colossians 3, uh, 17 and following. Now, if X action produces Y result and A action produces Y result, then A action and X action ought to be pretty similar. They work together. And the command in Colossians 3.16 is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. When you let the Word of Christ richly dwell within your soul, it produces certain consequences. When you're filled by means of the Spirit, it produces certain consequences. The filling by means of the Spirit is the divine side. The letting the Word of Christ dwell within you is your volitional action. You have to study the Word in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, and He fills your soul with Bible doctrine. And this is what the Bible refers to as epinosis. Not just gnosis or knowledge, it's not just academic knowledge, but it is a full knowledge, epinosis. Now, when we take that epinosis doctrine that's stored in our soul by the Holy Spirit, and we are walking by means of the Holy Spirit, which is the command of of Galatians 5.16... Now, look at Galatians 5.16. It says, walk by means of the Spirit. What did we just look at? We looked at a a verse dealing with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. Now, we don't have time to do an exposition of Galatians 5.16-25, to but Galatians 5.16 says, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the deeds of the flesh. Then the next two verses deal with the contrast between walking by the Spirit and the the deeds of the flesh, the spirit wars against the flesh or the sin nature, and the sin nature wars against the spirit. Then there's a couple of verses that give you a grocery list of the characteristics of the, of the production of the sin nature. And then you have those two verses that give you the characteristics of the production of the Holy Spirit. So that's the context. If you walk by the Spirit, what happens is the Holy Spirit produces character transformation. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, as the Holy Spirit produces character transformation, in this instance we have two characteristics that are developed. On the one hand, love, and on the other hand, faithfulness. And in relationship to the evaluation of the church in Thyatira, the love is producing Christian service. Which is an aspect of our impersonal love for other believers. The faithfulness, on the other hand, is producing endurance. Now, endurance is crucial to further spiritual growth. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, is a verse I quote over and over and over again here. Uh, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or tests. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Hupomones, endurance. You have to be tested. Just as an athlete is tested on the field, just as a, uh, someone who is a, a weightlifter tests his muscles, it's that endurance, it's the sticking with the workout over time that produces strength and growth. It's the same thing. You have to endure in that application of doctrine. It's a faithfulness that focuses on faithful study of the Word. It's a faithfulness that uh, culminates in endurance. Now, in our verse, in Revelation 2.19, you see that in the TR, in the King James Version, it restructured the order. Love, service, faith, endurance. Somewhere along the line... The scribes understood what the correct interpretation of the passage is, but because of the difficult Greek grammar, they tried to redo it so it would be clear that the love was related to service and the faithfulness was related to endurance. That explains why the word order got twisted around. But the way it was originally written was to emphasize, first of all, the character qualities, and then second, the results of those character qualities. So it should read love, faithfulness, even Christian service, or that is, uh, should read love and faithfulness, that is, Christian service and endurance. So the character that was produced in them by the Holy Spirit culminated in application in their Christian life. Now let's talk about love for just a minute. Love is one of those doctrines that is so poorly understood today because we live in such a self-centered emotional society that we think of love only in terms of emotion. And yet when the Bible talks about love, emotion is the last thing associated with it. In fact, if you study what the Bible teaches about love, you end up thinking that emotion needs to be driven far from love. If you're going to have real love, it is non-emotional. If it's emotional, it's not stable. You know how your emotions are. One day they're up, the next day they're down. Your emotions get tossed to and fro by every wind of circumstance. They get changed around by uh, chemical balances in your body, by how much sleep you have, what kind of food you've eaten, all these things change your emotions and affect your emotions. Now, in Matthew 22, 36 to 39, Jesus was asked a very important question by uh, one of the uh, scribes. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Actually, he, the, the one who was asking the question was trying to trip Jesus up and get him to pick one commandment over another. And our Lord, of course, was too sophisticated and too uh, knowledgeable for that. And he answered in verse 37 by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that is a quote from Deuteronomy. And it emphasizes the fact that uh, we should love the Lord our God with our soul, not with our feelings, with our thoughtful part. Now, I've highlighted... These three words, heart, soul, and mind. They're synonyms in the passage. These are not three distinct elements of the immaterial part of man. The word heart, which is the Greek word cardia, is a word that emphasizes the innermost part of a person. Now, let's talk a minute about the word heart. We think of heart as a physiological organ that pumps and circulates blood through our body. Now, I don't think it's correct to identify that as the point of the metaphor here. In fact, studies indicate that even in English, the word heart is used metaphorically to refer to something that is at the center of something, that is at the core of something. And so heart is a term that used in Scripture refers to the innermost part of man, what we would call the soul. Now, the soul is made up of different components. It's made up of self-consciousness. It's made up of our thinking facility, which is the mind. It's made up of a conscience or the place where our norms and standards are located. Sometimes the term heart in Scripture refers to the entirety of the soul. And so when uh, Jesus said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, He's talking about all that makes you who you are. In fact, in some places, heart is used as a reference to the first person singular pronoun. So it refers to who a person is. In the second phrase, He says, with all your soul, that is, every ounce of your being, and with all your mind. And that third word there is the Greek word dia noia which indicates the thinking part or the intellectual center of your soul. So that love for God is not just some sort of vacuous emotion to God, but it, it, it is based on thought. In fact, what you'll find from critics of Christianity is they'll say, well, you just have to put your brain in neutral and accept all that stuff. Just the opposite. If you understand biblical Christianity, it is the most thoughtful It is the most intellectual of disciplines that you have to think, you have to know, you have to study in order to love God. It is not just sitting around and singing, oh, how I love Jesus. It is entering into an understanding of his thinking, which is expressed in the Word of God. The word cardia, according to the exegetical dictionary of the New Testament, refers thus to the inner person person. The seat of understanding, knowledge, and will. I mentioned the soul earlier. I left volition out. But sometimes heart refers even to will. Now, most of the time, the word heart refers to the thinking operation of the soul. Sometimes it refers to conscience. Sometimes it refers to will. Sometimes it refers to the different elements within the soul. But primarily, it is referring to... To the thinking part of the soul So when the Lord Jesus Christ Summarized the whole of the Mosaic Law He said first of all It means to love the Lord your God With all your heart With all your soul And with all your mind And those are synonyms He's saying you need to love the Lord your God With all your thinking Think about it The second thing that he mentioned Verse 23 uh, Verse 39 rather Uh, Matthew 22 The second is like it You shall love your neighbor as yourself Now that's what all of the Mosaic Law is about It's how people live together in society What they're supposed to do When one person breaks the law And gets involved in criminal activity There are certain punishments If you are a farmer And you notice that your neighbor's Uh, Oxen have gotten loose What you're supposed to do to take care of them That's loving your neighbor as yourself So all of the Mosaic law Talks about that You have rules about uh, the rooftop that You should set a parapet around the roof This isn't Osha This is the word of God You need to protect uh, the the rooftop So that when people are up there uh, They would sleep on the roof often Because in the ancient world They didn't have air conditioning I wonder if we have air conditioning in here tonight, but uh, they didn't have air conditioning then, so they would often sleep up on the roof in the summer. It was cooler. Well, if you toss and turn when you sleep, you might roll off the roof. So the Mosaic Law prescribed a parapet, a rail around the roof, so that wouldn't happen. That's just loving your neighbor as yourself. But as you get into the uh, Old Testament, you realize that, Loving God is related to uh, a very objective criteria, and that's called obedience to the Word, keeping the Word, doing what the law says to do. Now, we know the law is not for today, but nevertheless, there are mandates in the New Testament, and Jesus Christ said the same thing, that if you love Me, you will keep My Word. So Deuteronomy 7, nine says, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. See, they're synonymous. Deuteronomy 10.12, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? So you obey the lord you love the lord by serving him that's the outworking of that second commandment you serve the lord in terms of ministry to other believers Deuteronomy 11:1 therefore you shall love the lord your god and what keep his charge his statutes his judgments and his commandments always how do you know if you love god it's not by how you feel it's by your obedience or application of doctrine that's the criteria so the Old Testament comes along and takes this mandate. We're to love the Lord our God, and secondly, to love our neighbors ourselves. That comes from Leviticus 19.18 also. And that mandate is then reiterated seven times in the New Testament. Matthew 5.43, Matthew 19.1, Matthew 29.39, Mark 12.31, Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14. And James two eight, these passages all restate that mandate to love your neighbor as yourself. But there's a shift in the New Testament. There's a shift that takes place, and that is in John thirteen thirty four and thirty five Jesus said, "A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also loved one another. By this, by this act of loving one another, See, that's that application of impersonal love for all mankind, impersonal love for other believers, unconditional love. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, when I use that term impersonal love, the reason we use that term impersonal is because it means you don't need to know the other person, the object of your love. It's a person that you find uh, stranded on the side of the freeway, perhaps, or the person you are interacting with at the grocery store. You don't have to know them. You don't have to have a relationship with them to treat them in a kind way and to treat them in a biblically loving manner. This was the reason the Lord gave the parable uh, of the Good Samaritan. He found somebody who had been uh, mugged, beaten up on the side of the road, and he took him home, uh, gave him uh, clothes, cleaned him up, fed him, gave him money. Uh, That was, he didn't have a clue who that individual was. It was impersonal in the sense that he didn't know the person. It wasn't based on a personal knowledge of the uh, object of his love. Now, when we look at this commandment and contrast it with, excuse me, with Leviticus 19.18, I want you to note a couple of important differences. If we look at Leviticus 19.18, the command is the same. It's to love. You have a mandate in both passages. But the object of your love in Leviticus, in the Mosaic Law, is your neighbor. That is, anybody who lives next door to you anybody who comes into your periphery whether they're a believer or unbeliever their spiritual status is irrelevant to this command you're to love your neighbor but well, what's the what's the standard that's given here you're to love your neighbors you love yourself now this is really interesting because you see the assumption here is that everybody loves themselves Contrary to the education philosophy in that great state of California that has imposed a self-esteem curriculum, every person loves themselves. Adolf Hitler had a high self-esteem. Saddam Hussein had a great self-esteem. The problem isn't that people don't love themselves. The problem is that they love themselves way too much. You see, when you look in the mirror and you say, oh, you know, I'm so fat, I'm so ugly, I just feel terrible about myself The reason you feel terrible about yourself Is because at the root you love yourself And you're disappointed how fat and ugly you are See nobody has a poor self-esteem That's just human viewpoint garbage The Bible in fact recognizes this Everyone's talking about marriage in, in Ephesians chapter 5 That husbands are to love their wives As their own bodies You see the Lord recognizes Everybody inherently Puts themselves first. That's part of the sin nature. So you're to love others. Put them first, not yourself. So that's the model. Now the Lord Jesus Christ jacked it all up. He said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now the one another here doesn't relate to unbelievers. Now this isn't replacing, it doesn't say you don't have a responsibility to exercise impersonal love to unbelievers, but this is a higher standard towards other members in the body of Christ. That you love one another. How are we to love other believers? As I love you, not as you love yourself. That's a, that's a low standard. The new standard is as I love you. Now, how did Jesus Christ love us? He went to the cross and He died for our sins. He went through unimaginable agony for you so that you could have salvation. That's how we're to love other believers. You mean I have to love so-and-so like that? They're such a scumbag. Yeah, you're a scumbag too. As far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned, while we were at enmity with God, Christ died for us. While we were as obnoxious and unappealing as we could possibly be because of sin, Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for our sins. So a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the background for Christian service. Christian service isn't a basis for spiritual growth. Christian service is the result of spiritual growth, but there's nevertheless a mandate in in the Scripture that we need to be involved as members of the body of Christ with one another, ministering to one another, ministering in the local church. That's why the local church is important. If the the local church and the assembly of believers wasn't important, then the Lord would have said, well, just go out there, everybody get a copy of Paul's letters and go read them on your own. You don't ever need to get together with other believers. You don't need to sit under a pastor teacher. And see, there's a lot of people who think that all they need to do is just sit with a tape recorder and they have it made. Well, they can grow and they can learn doctrine and they can advance. But they can't operate like they're supposed to within the body of Christ. That's why you're given spiritual gifts, is to serve one another. And some people get the idea, well, I can serve other Christians somewhere else out there in the marketplace. That's not the intent of the Bible. The New Testament is focusing on an assembly of believers, which is where believers come together and they learn the Word of God, and then they can apply that in relation to one another. Now, I know we live in a t- terrible time, but every time I travel I hear stories, more stories about people who have gone to some place. It's a populated area, but there's not a Bible-teaching church, not a grace-oriented church anywhere around. I heard several stories of that this last week. But there are pockets, there are places here and there where you can't find a local church. And thankfully, we do live in an era where we have the Internet and we have MP3s and tape recorders and all of these other wonderful uh, things that give us the ability to listen to tape. But listening to a tape is no substitute for a local assembly. And if you're living somewhere and you, and, and there's any way for you to move and get someplace where you can be part of a local assembly where the Word of God is being taught, then that should be a priority in your life. I know that if you're in the military, some other fields, you just can't move. But, it, and I know how hard it is today. It's very difficult. There's only two or three churches in Houston that teach anything close to sound doctrine. There's only three or four in the Dallas area. Only a couple now. Um, You know, some other cities, large cities, there's no place to go. It's more and more difficult. Sometimes you'll find a small little church here or there that teaches the Word. But that's the standard that is presented in the Word. So, the first aspect that's mentioned in, in Revelation 2.19 is, I know your love, and that produces, uh, your love, and that produces service. And secondly, I know your faith or faithfulness. See, it's translated that way in 2 Timothy 2.22, where Paul says to Timothy, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faithfulness, love, peace with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The word translated faithfulness, there's our same word, pistis, that means faith in many places. It just means to trust in the Lord. So, it has that idea of faithfulness. And we need to be faithful. And that means to be consistent in taking in the word, day in and day out. That needs to be a priority in your life. And it needs to be a priority to be in Bible class. Whenever the doors are open, that's part of that involvement in the local church. Faithfulness also means to be consistent in the application of the Word. Consistency in being in fellowship. Consistency in application of impersonal love and Christian service. And then endurance is related to testing that. Endurance is staying with it over a long period of time. Endurance is consistent application of doctrine which leads to spiritual growth and maturity. So in conclusion A couple of points First of all we have to recognize that the fruit of the Spirit That is love and faithfulness Is the result of walking by means of the Spirit The fruit of the Spirit is the result of walking by the Spirit Walking by the Spirit is an active voice verb It's not passive Just letting the Spirit zap you with something It is active step by step dependence upon the Holy Spirit And what He's taught in the Word Second Walking by means of the Spirit involves staying in fellowship, that is, abiding in Christ, taking in the Word of God consistently and applying the Word of God. And here's the process. We have a, here's the soul of the believer. We have the outer circle is the noose or the mind. And then there's an inner core, which is referred to as the heart, the cardia. The pastor-teacher communicates the word. And then the filling of the Holy Spirit makes it understandable. Notice this. The Holy Spirit doesn't, the Holy Spirit does not understand it for you. Okay? That's making your brain passive. The Holy Spirit is going to enable you to understand it. That means you have to think about it. That was a Jewish concept of meditation. You have to think about it. You have to understand it because at the next step you have to believe it. And trust me, you can't believe something you don't understand. Now, a lot of people nod their heads and they say, I understand what what Pastor Dean said. But you know what? They don't understand it. Sometimes we have to hear things for years. I know there were many things I heard in seminary, and I've heard from pastors that I say, that sounds great. But I really didn't understand it. And you can't believe something you don't understand. So that's the first decision you have to make, is to think about it, to understand it. And after you understand it, then you make another decision, and that is to believe it. And when you believe it, that gnosis... See, once you uh, once it's understandable, it becomes gnosis. Once you believe it as gnosis, the Holy Spirit transfers it into your heart, the innermost part of the soul... As epinosis doctrine, and that's usable spiritual knowledge. It doesn't produce growth, it's just usable now. Usable and profitable for growth. And then you're going to get opportunities to apply it. And that's your third opportunity to use your volition to make decisions for application. When you get to that point of application, that's when the Holy Spirit uses it to produce spiritual growth. So as Bible doctrine is assimilated into your, into your thinking Under the teaching and filling of the Holy Spirit Then the Holy Spirit uses it to produce spiritual growth Fourth point Along with spiritual growth comes the realization that I need to engage my volition in terms of Christian service And in terms of endurance Sticking with it Fifth point Christian service is not the means to spiritual growth, but the result of spiritual growth. See, the application comes at the end of a process, and that process is where growth is taking place. You've got to listen to the Word, meditate on the Word, understand it, believe it. Uh, It's academic knowledge. Uh, When you believe it, it's transferred into the soul's epinosis, and then you can apply it. Sixth point, Christian service relates to family responsibilities. We use the term, royal family of God. Now some of you have, let's say, not so great family experiences in your background, so you can't use your experience as an analogy. But the idea is that the body of Christ is a family. There's an intimacy there. There is a care for one another That is part of family life. And when you see these families get together, large families, they they care about one another. They're concerned about one another. They take care of one another. They watch each other's back. That's what the body of Christ is all about. We're taking care of one another. That's what Christian service is. Utilizing your spiritual gifts to pray for one another, teach one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. It's a family. That's what the church is. It's not just a collection of, of individuals like a bunch of atoms that just bounce in here three times a week and then bounce out. There's no family there. It is, it, there's an intimacy. Now, that doesn't mean you have to like every believer. If that were true, I'd be in a world of hurt. There's a lot of believers out there. I don't care to be around, but that doesn't absolve you of that responsibility. I know they're brothers and sisters. They're siblings that don't care a whole lot about each other. In terms of like them, they're, they're, they're very different. But you nevertheless operate on who God is and who Christ is, and you exhibit that in personal love. So Christian service relates to family responsibilities as members of the royal family of God. That was point six. And point seven, Christian service relates to fulfilling various functions within the local body of Christ as well as outside of the local body of Christ. And that is part of our uh, priesthood as believers. We'll come back next time and look at the negatives in Thyatira, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the things that are written here, to recognize that the only way we can grow as believers is to study your word, to take it in, to meditate on it, and under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and its filling ministry, we see spiritual growth take place, see uh, the character of Christ created in us, and we become transformed. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening who's unsure of their spiritual condition, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the free gift of salvation is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He died as our substitute. He paid the penalty so that by faith alone in Christ alone, by simply trusting Him, accepting that free gift, we can have eternal salvation. And that is ours for all eternity. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it, and you can do nothing to lose it. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening